Close. It's a little fast for taps. You know, normally it sounds it sounds more like a wedding dance than taps at that pace. I have to say, normally it's very it's very slow. Really, to do to go to half speed when they first half speed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that was my best shot at TAPS, but good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you all are. This is Trish Lambert standing in for Dave Kale, and we're at Riddles in the Dark, and the reason for that wedding song TAPS <laughs> is, is that we're saying farewell to Thorin in this episode of Riddles in the Dark. And with me is, of course, the one, the only, Tolkien Professor Corey Olson. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. So, yes, today we're, uh, you know, we have to put a sort of a blanket spoiler alert over today's episode, you know, because uh, um, Thorin dies. Um, that's... <laughs> no! I know. I know. I know. Um, <clears throat> though, you know, it's, this is, it's, that to me raises a really interesting uh you know, the interesting question that I think we talked about last time, did we? I can't even remember anymore about, um, you know, the the issue of how do you do, you know, what kind of choice do you make uh, when you're making an adaptation of a book which has like a surprise or a dramatic thing at the end and, you know, right. everyone's anticipating it because they've read the book. Um, so... I think that, the, you know, the role of Thorin's... And this is why I feel that the, you know, the petition to save Thorin's life um, is so <laughs> cute but misguided. Um, because it's... it's um, I don't know. I mean, if you feel like this is sort of a story where you can just be like, okay, we're going to tell exactly the same story, except Thorin lives, you know. That's right. It's not the exact same story. I mean, like, it's just that it's just a very, uh, you know, uh, again, cute, but simple minded way of looking at at, at the story. You know, I'm trying to think of the adaptations. Like, for example, I remember one when I was doing research for a paper I presented and um, uh, discovered that Humphrey Carpenter, who is the person who actually wrote Tolkien's biography. Right. In his younger days. Uh, wrote a, a play of The Hobbit, an adaptation, and he, and he decided to move the death of the dragon to the mountain, in his words, to put it in the center of the action. But I can't, you know, which is like, okay, fine. and then Tolkien actually saw the play. Can you yes. imagine? I mean, what hubris of Car- on Carpenter's part. <laughs> but, um, but I cannot think of any adaptation, even the children's play, that actually had Thorin live. What, right. there, I don't think there's ever been an adaptation where that happened, correct? I don't think. I, don't, even, I know. Even Rankin Bass. Even Rankin Bass <laughs> killed off Thorin. Though, of course, they callously killed off half the dwarves for no reason whatsoever. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but, but yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, it, so, it, it is. You know. I mean, it, it's 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 a fundamental part of the story all the way through, right. you know, and, and it's, I think it's, it's, again, it's, it's one of those things, especially, which is, which is sort of more, the, 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 the awareness of that is even more keen. Uh, Thorin's death fits very well into the book, but it's not like, I, I mean, I don't think that whole story is sort of obviously, you know, kind of, freighted with the awareness of Thorin's impending death from the beginning. You know, it's not like we're getting foreshadowing of Thorin's demise 
from day one. Like that's it's right. not how the Hobbit works as a story. But when you are doing a film adaptation of a classic book, which which famously ends with the death and deeply moving deathbed scene of one of the principal characters. That is going to be something... I mean, I know it's been on my mind. I, I assume that for very many of us, um, if we made a, you know, a short list of like the top five scenes we were most interested to see how they were going to handle in the adaptation, like if, we, if, if you know, three years ago or five, four years ago, we had, uh, you know, we had all gotten together and make this list, I assume that you know, the Riddle Game scene and Thorin's deathbed might have been the top two scenes... Um, you know, that we were, that, that were on our collective list of scenes that we were looking, you know, sort of central scenes that we were most anticipating in, in a film adaptation or just, you know, most interested to see how they would handle. It's an absolutely crucial scene. Um, certainly I think in the minds and imaginations of readers, again, not because it's, it is in a sense like the, the sort of central moment of the book, um, because, like I said, I don't think the, the 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 plot anticipates it. It's part of the turn that the that the story takes at the end. But um, but when you're doing an adaptation, it's got to be front and center in your mind. And I think that we have been seeing that. You know, I think that unlike in the book, the Thorin that we meet on day one in Bag End in film one, you know like already has his deathbed scene written all over him. You know, I mean, like this is, this is, he is, he is a tragic figure from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that seems to me entirely appropriate. I I mean, I think that, that, um, you know, because there are some things you can't, and I think shouldn't try to recreate, um, when you're, um, when you're doing the, uh, you know, when you're doing an adaptation of something like that, I mean, they could try to, 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 to create, you know, to depict Thorin as he's depicted in the book without that sense of, you know, sort of the doom that awaits him at the end of the story. But since in the minds of most of the viewers, we already have that doom in mind, there's, I I, I mean, I don't think there's much sense in trying to recreate that, that experience. So of course here I'm I'm just uh, I'm 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 continuing to to mull over this this question that Neil Ottenstein raised at the Midmoot conference weekend before last, which I just th- I just thought was such a smart question to ask and such a smart thing to talk about, um, you know just the entire way in which you approach a story when you're retelling a famous story, which has you know a twist or a surprise ending or something like that, and the way in which it. The, the 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 very very different place that you're in as a storyteller when you're approaching that the second time you know when you're doing a retelling and when you're doing an adaptation of that um, mm-hmm. and I think that this is something that they've really done quite well actually um, I think that they have set up Thorin for I mean I I don't know exactly how well they're going to pull it off in film three in the at the end of the day but but they've set themselves up, I think, for a really satisfying character arc for Thorin from, you know, the beginning of film one through this. Yeah. um, In Ratliff, you know, Ratliff has written the book, John Ratliff, about the uh, process of writing The Hobbit. Thorin was always slated to have this sort of hero's death, wasn't he? 
Well, sort of. I mean, it's not at all clear to me that Tolkien had any idea what was going to happen at the end of the story. <laughs> you know, um, it's one of the things that I find most delightful and charming is um, you, you remember that bit in um, uh, the chapter one of The Hobbit where uh, the narrator is talking about Bilbo um, and, sa- and says, this is a story of a hobbit who had an adventure, you know, and, and, and talks about how he lost the respect right. of the neighbors and then says, but he gained, well, we'll see, you know, we'll see if you right. think he gained anything in the end. That's and right. of course that comes off as like this very like sort of, you know, kind of prim piece of foreshadowing, right? Like I, the narrator, of course, know what he's going to, but we will, I'm not going to give that away, right? We will see. Tolkien wrote that in the first draft, like when he himself had literally no idea what no idea. Bilbo was going to gain. <laughs> like Tolkien actually had no I, no concept of what Bilbo was going to have gained. Uh, that absolutely grew along the way. And you can see it's very clear from the plot outlines that he drew. He, he, at various points, had wildly different ideas about where this story was heading and how Bilbo's life was going to be changed. But I love the fact that that line, which works so well, um, and is, 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 is one, I mean, I've, uh, it's one of my favorite moments of the Hobbit narrator uh, in, in the book. Um, and it was like a shot in the dark <laughs> when Tolkien wrote it. Uh, and that's very, it's very, it's very funny. Um, so, you know, is he slated for, is he slated for a tragic death? Um, I mean, I, that's always a possibility, but I don't think it, there's like a very clear destiny for that. Um, right. uh, it's, um, yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's. So it was something that sort of um, revealed itself as he wrote. The story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are sort of f- f- two different factors which emerge as the story goes on. One is really the the whole you know what I call the return of the king motif in the Hobbit. You know the the the, the destined return of the. Of of the dwarves to the lonely mountain and 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 the return of the king under the mountain, even more importantly than the return of the dwarves, that sort of more mythic sense of you know the return of the king, uh, you know of the king uh, the king beneath the mountain, the king under the mountain, um, uh, you know which by itself is one of those things like the the um, that phrase alone, like you don't need a story, you know just the phrase the king under the mountain is a mythic idea, you know, like the, 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 Tolkien, I think is so good at that. You know, there are so many places where, um, even if you don't know the story at all, but you just know the phrase or the description, um, right. has itself a kind of mythic evocative, uh, ev- evocativeness, yes, evocation. That works. I guess evocation, <laughs> evocation is kind of know. different, but anyway. Um, so anyway, it's it's very evocative, is what I'm trying to say. Um, anyway, that that's chapter ten. You know, uh, when when they arrive at Lake Town, you know, and all of a sudden 
Thorin is all like, I am Thorin, son of Thran, son of Thor, king of the mountain, I return, you know, and that note was not really struck before. You know, we had hints of it, you know, there was, there was, but that sense of, you know, and, and now all of a sudden we're getting these songs prophesying the return of the king and, and all those, you know, that all, you know, leaps into being in chapter 10. Right. And... Then the second strand that we get in the book is the dragon sickness strand, right? You know, when Thorin begins to fall um, into, into dragon sickness and, um, and then is redeemed in the Battle of Five Armies. So his tragic death seems to me really to kind of grow out of both of those two strands, mm-hmm. neither of which um, is there... Uh, seems to be there from the beginning, you know, seems to be there from the beginning at all, um, necessarily. However, in the films, um, in the films, uh, it is there from the beginning, you know, that, that's, that's, you know, front and center in the films, which again, I think is, seems to me a very appropriate, um, approach to the thing. Um, oh, I agree. I mean, well, and plus you've said it a number of times that in the books, you know, he starts out just a grumpy old man. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just not, and it, that's just not practical in terms right. of the film to right. do that. Right. A um, snooty old so, man looking down his yes. nose at Bilbo. Um, Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's, there's the kind of disdain that Thorin shows for Bilbo in the films, but it's very different from like the pure snobbishness, you know, um, mm-hmm. that, um, uh, that Thorin shows for, 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 for Bilbo. I mean, and even, even, you know, when you go to the quest, uh, you know, the quest for Erebor and stuff, um, you know, when we get more details of it, we see, oh, okay. So he's not, it's not, he's not only a snob, he's also a racist as well. (laughs) You know, he also just, you know, just despises hobbits, you know, on principle, um, you know, (laughs) so that's, um, he's, he's a, Anybody not dwarf. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So, so yeah, yeah. Brian Federini makes a great point. You know, film Thorin is much less aristocratic than book Thorin. Yes. Uh, I I think that's a really good way to think of it. Um, That kind of, that sense of aristocracy, that sense of his own family dignity is something that's very prominent in the book and not very prominent in the film. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and part of that is because he's more of the tragic hero. He is the, he is the leader of a people who are in exile, you know, and the fact that his people are in exile and, and that they want, you know, that he wants to return them to their lands and to their, you know, to their own place and to the, the life that they knew, um, is, you know, the absolute bedrock of his character, um, and again, he was not in the book sort of, uh, first and foremost, a leader, you know, he wasn't for, right. you know, he was, he was, he was first and foremost, <clears throat> a tremendously important dwarf, which is how he's introduced to us in chapter one. Right. Um, I, I, so yeah, he was pompous, but he wasn't, um, he wasn't focused on the good of his people in ways that we see Thorin torn up about the good of his people from the beginning. You know, that conversation <clears throat> in film one that we get between Balin and Thorin, right? You know, and Thorin's desire to do this for his people and and Balin saying, it's okay, you don't have to. Um, and it's interesting because <clears throat> when you go back to the book, what Balin is 
voicing there is actually something, or at least it's close to something, that Thorin himself voices in the book. That is, you know, when Thorin says, you know, even though, uh, even though, you know, we're doing okay now and we're not too bad, we're not too badly off, you know, um, but, um, uh, you know, but we still want to get our treasure back. You know, that is, he recognizes, like, okay, yeah, you know, we've uh, we've had it rough for a while, but we're building a life for ourselves, and we've started to build a little bit of wealth. He touches, you know, when he says that, he touches the gold chain around his uh, around his throat in the book, right? You know, he's like, you know, we still do, we, you know. I've got some money, right? You know, I, I, I have a bit laid by, as he says, Um and they're not so badly. I was like, you know, the, so no, the, the the dwarves are not mere paupers anymore, but they still don't have their treasure, and they still miss their treasure. And what they miss about their treasure seems to be more than just its financial value. Um, but again, this Thorin, the film Thorin, is very different from the beginning. He is the leader of a people in exile. He is a person who is torn up about, you know, the sufferings of his people. Um, and of course, and of course, about his own sort of perceived responsibility, or not responsibility for that, but failure in that. You know, he has, um, he has, um, you know, to use a phrase which Tolkien imposed upon Thorin much later on. You know, he has inherited the the you know uh, he has inherited the vengeance against you know the the the, the vendetta against the dragon. Um, which lies upon his conscience as yet unfulfilled. That's not Thorin as we meet him in chapter one of The Hobbit. You know, that's Thorin as as Tolkien later conceived him. Right. But that is Thorin as we meet him in 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 the films. Mm-hmm. So, the overall trajectory of Thorin's character from you know leader of the exiles who is trying to return, and of course it's all wrapped up in the good of his people as well as in his own self image and his own. Not his own rights, but his own identity, you know? Um, who is he? Is he the king of the dwarves? Is he, you know, he's not succeeding in being the king of the dwarves in the sense that he's not, you know, he's not taking care of his people. He's not able to provide a kingdom, you know, a place for his people. They're dispersed and, and, and in exile. But he also does not have the seat of his fathers. You know, he doesn't have the Arkenstone, and he doesn't, um, you know, he, he is no longer a king under the mountain. So that combination of him wanting to prove himself and wanting to reestablish his own rights um, and his own identity as king under the mountain um, is, you know, sort of in parallel to, but I think also in a little bit of tension with you know, his desire to provide for his people. This is where it's the tension there, um, where I think, so far anyway, I think that Peter Jackson, the way that Peter Jackson is weaving the um, the dragon sickness plot into mm-hmm. the return from exile plot is really quite cunning, actually. I, I think it works very well. Um, because that, that, that one little, that, that, that bit of space, you know, there's like this tiny... You know, there's like this tiny crack between Thorin as compassionate leader of his people and Thorin as like frustrated and embittered person who is not king. You know, that is like the issue of his the good of his people versus his own identity um, and his own his own concept of kingship. But we already that's where I feel like the 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 the, the crack has come and has been widening. Um, and widens very noticeably over the course of the second film. Thinking of that conversation with Feely that we've talked about many times in Lake Town, you know, where he's like, 
you know, far from a no dwarf left behind policy, you know, he had, you know, it's, it's like a, you know, we can't, we can't, uh, you know, compromise the mission for the sake of one dwarf. Um, here he is basically putting the reestablishment of the kingship above the good of, you know, some of his people. You know, he's not first and foremost thinking of his people. Feely does that, right? Feely puts his loyalty to his brother above reestablishing the kingship. Right. By staying there. Um, and then, of course, the conversation that he has with Balin, right, when Balin is rebuking him for just calling Bilbo the burglar. Um, and, you know, Balin's whole point of view, I mean, I feel like that conversation really has to be placed next to the, the speech that Balin makes about Thorin in film one, right? You know, the whole, like, that's the, you know, when I saw, like, that's the king that I would follow, right? That The whole, his his description of, as an Ulbazar. Um, and, um, uh, and so basically like Thorin is, as Thorin is focused on regaining the kingship, he's kind of losing that. This is why, um, you know, it is because I've been very interested in how they have done this, not only in how they have spotlighted these, you know, these, these things, which seem to work really well to me, you know, in Thorin's character, um, but also the way in which they've woven the dragon sickness stuff into that. Um, that's why I was so interested in the the uh, golden statue business at the end of the Desolation of Smaug. You know, well, almost everybody else I knew <clears throat> was saying, what the heck is going on? This is ridiculous. Um, I was saying... No, wait, hang on, that's really cool. Like, I, I, you know, if you put aside the fact that, you know, it's outrageously unlike anything that happens in the book, and and you put aside the outrageous uh, physical improbability or impossibility of many of the things that happen, um, nevertheless, what you're left with, <laughs> once, you, once you have succeeded in ignoring all of those things, um, what you're left with is something which I think seemed to me to speak very directly to this question, and I thought in a really fascinating way. The image that we got of Thorin standing there, you know, like hanging there on the chains right above, like, the shoulder of the, of the golden king statue facing Smaug and, um, you know, in defiance next to the statue and then having the statue explode all over, all over Smaug, I thought was a really, really effective, um, symbolic moment in that film. You know, the king, the golden statue of the king under the mountain, because that was, I mean, it's, it is like the perfect symbol <clears throat> of the abstract concept of the king under the mountain, right? The king under the mountain is this great, huge, epic figure made of solid gold. Like that's exact. That's it's 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 an excellent like that that image was an excellent image for the con for the concept of the king under the mountain, which you know Thorin is, um, you know which Thorin is sort of working towards, and which Thorin has kind of taken to himself. You know which he's kind of striving for. But in that moment, Thorin simultaneously gains it and loses it, right? There he has, he has returned to the mountain, and he has restored 
the king under the mountain, right? There's the golden statue. It was already, right? It was already, it was a, there was a mold. I mean, I even, I love that idea of the fact that this mold existed, right? That in the heart of empty Erebor, well, mostly empty Erebor, occupied only by dragon Erebor, in the, in the, in the middle of dragon occupied Erebor, there was a mold, a king under the mountain shaped mold that was empty, you know, waiting for the king under the mountain to return and fill it like that. That, that, my, forget the statue, the mold itself is an awesome image for, you know, like that aching need for the king under the mountain to return. You know, that, 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 that's, that, that's so, I love that. That's so neat. Um, and then he does return and the gold, he gets the forges of the dwarves again, the forges of the dwarves, right? Again, a very, a very iconic idea for, you know, returning life to the mountain, right? If, you know, the dwarves are, 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 are starting up their forges again. The king under the mountain is forging gold, they say in Lake Town, except this time it turns out to be true. And um, uh, so, you know, they start up the forges under the mountain. The, you know, the, the, the life, the dwarven life has returned to the mountain and the gold pours into the mold and the, the golden king under the mountain is returned. But Thorin is using that not to, to declare his, um, his kingship, right? Not to celebrate himself. Not so that he can make this huge golden statue and then, like, you know, sit in front of it and, like, you know, bask in the reflected glory of this huge golden statue, but rather he's sacrificing it. You know, that whole mold is now going to go for nothing. You know, it's, 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 and, and in fact, it's just going to kind of wreck up his, his throne room. Not, but what, like, a coating of gold over the entire throne room is not an upgrade in some ways, don't get me wrong, but, um, uh, uh, anyway, um, <laughs> but nevertheless, in fact, I'm sure at some point, those, like, uh, you know, like, the golden footprints of Smaug uh, leading out of the mountain are going to be quite the conversation pieces, you know, uh, uh, later on, but, anyway, um, I, I, I'll channel Dave here. I'm sure Dave would say something like, it's amazing how much you can make of that scene, Corey. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, this is to me, uh, this is to me the sign of, um, this is to me the sign of a really rich moment in the film. You know, like it's, it's, I mean, what is any of this stuff but raw material? And that's good raw material, man. Like that's what I'm talking about. It's and because the fact is, I know that like when I when I you know like when I when I talk like this about a scene like this, it's easy to think like this is just me being clever, you know, and applying my own cleverness to this. But the fact is, I find that doesn't work all the time. You know, it's this is this is what um, you know, for me. This is one of the ways in which, one of the primary ways in which I evaluate both books and films is the material that they give for this kind of thinking. You know, the material they give for this kind, if, if, if a book is a really, you know, provides really fertile ground for these kind, you know, for, for, for sort of seeing these kinds of stories in them, for, you know, then, then it's a good book. In my in, in my world, I mean that's 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 how I decide. I am willing to put up uh, in films. I'm willing to put up with a with a very great deal of pointless decapitation 
if I am given scenes like that that I can think about and talk about. Just as in a book, I'm willing to put up with an enormous amount of terrible writing, almost any number of dangling modifiers, in order to, uh, to, to get moments like that and scenes like mm-hmm. that. There's some writers that still push the envelope. But, like, take, for instance, writers who do push the envelope. Take Stephanie Meyer and Twilight. My goodness. Had there been, you know, one scene in Twilight like that, I would have been able to tolerate her bad prose and boring story much, much more. Um, <laughs> it's the fact that I found Twilight utterly unevocative in this way because it's all just, like, inviting you to do introspective, self-fantasizing navel-gazing that I disliked about it. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> it, it, it's and, and any of this kind of, so So, you know, again, to me, this is, this is about... This is about what's there. But keep in mind, I am not trying to claim that this was what they they planned um you know maybe the filmmakers had this particular symbol or this the, the particular this particular function of this symbol of the you know the the statue mold and the statue maybe that's what peter jackson was thinking maybe that's what philip boyens was thinking when you know or, or fran walsh when they wrote it i don't know but if they didn't i don't care <laughs> you know, I, right, right. I, I, it's I, that. It doesn't matter to me I, because that again, that that's my experience with all of literature. You know, I, half the time, I the authors don't know what they're doing, and that's delightful. That's one of the things that makes literature awesome. Um, is that it's this like, you know, this sort of magical dynamic process, you know, mm-hmm. which sort of works through the author. Um, but goodness, right. if if every book were only what the author conceived of it to be, it would be a duller world. That's one of the reasons why I think software programs don't work for book writing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Whatever it is that people like tap into, you know, which seems right. to make them but the instrument of, 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 of a story which is greater than they know, uh, computers don't seem to have tapped into that yet. Maybe no. someday they will, but but they, I don't no. think they have yet. Um, yeah. I, I personally, you know, you, I think you mentioned it earlier, and I, I do think, and we may be, you know, I'm, I'm probably repeating, you know, old news here, but um, I think they have done a better job with, with Thorin um, in the movie than Tolkien did in the book. I mean, not even, they could have left him the same age as he was in the book. But you know, done a similar arc, and they would have done a better job. I I just think there's a more, you know, you see Thorin being uh, both impulsive and a king, even as early as as an Olbazar in the movie, and you see that you know follow through. Like obviously Azog, you know, he's got like an irrational streak when it comes to Azog, where he will literally put his life on the line just yes. for a chance to get at him, kind of thing. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, the bravery and all this kind of stuff. And I just think it's they've they've made the character very consistent through the movie. Um, and also, like you said, identifiable, you know, I mean, he's much easily, I can identify with him in terms of follow him and be interested in him as a character, um, much more so than, mm-hmm. than I found in the book. So, mm-hmm. but you know, I mean, Tolkien really, he literally was feeling his way. And I think yeah. that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, even to Thorin's death scene, you know, a lot of this is, is derived from the sagas and from the myths that he loved so much. And I don't even know at the time he wrote, I mean, I can't remember now, but I mean, it's like, you know, he's busy trying to get other stuff published for at least a long time while he was writing this story. I don't even know that that was in his mind. 
Um, so, you know, there was no real, well, someday this may be made into a movie or, you know, I'm targeting the top of the New York Times bestseller list. You right, know I mean? It's right, just, right. that wasn't even part of his thinking. Yeah. Yeah. No, not at all. It was, it, you know, it's almost like, I suppose you could put, I think I've said this before, you know, it's almost like the Hobbit was a writing exercise in preparation for the Lord of the Rings. I know that's right. Oh on the horizon at this time but it kind of is like that yeah yeah no i i agree i mean that's that's uh, it's an obviously unhistorical way to 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 think about it but but yeah so looking at the big picture um <clears throat> yeah there's no and, and i was talking you know i talked about this in my book of lost tales class um that to me i think the hobbit is even more than that you know that to me i see the hobbit as the turning point of Tolkien's career. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it was, it was that moment when everything really came together. What we get before the Hobbit um, is some comical stuff, you know, like of the farmer Giles of ham, you know, the man in the moon came down too soon kind of thing. Uh, Tom Bombadil. And, um, and the, the, you know, the early versions of the Silmarillion material, the Book of Lost Tales right. stuff, and, uh, you know, the, the Lay of Lathian and the Illiterative Children of Hurin, and, you know, the beginning of putting those things together into, uh, you know, into a sort of a historical overview in the 1930 Quenta and all that stuff. So we've got him working with the, you know, with the history of the elves and the Valar um, and telling these great epic and tragic stories. And then... In the hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit, right? And that in that in that moment with Bilbo Baggins, um, and because re- really, I think it's about the hobbits themselves. You know, it's about it's about Bilbo and the framework that the hobbits provide, um, the touchstone that the hobbits become um, for the entire you know, and, and the way that they become the the sort of the medium through which we are introduced to the entire world and to the legendarium. Um, that's the turning point, I think, in his entire life. So, you know, when he writes The Hobbit, which, uh, you know, as I've argued before, I don't think was intended to be within the same world. I don't think he, he, he uh, you know, though, he, though obviously in the very first draft of chapter one, he thought of it that way, you know, or at least he was kind of toying around with that. Um, uh, by the way, I mean, again, for people who haven't read John Ratliff's History of the Hobbit, which I strongly recommend, um, in the first draft of chapter one, there's an overt reference to the fact that um, the story of Baron and Luthien happened less than a hundred years before. Um, you know, like it's the the, the 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 Hobbit takes place in the immediate sort of historical context of that. But then he ditches it. Um, he cuts that out almost immediately. Like his second draft of the chapter doesn't include that. Um, so his very first toying with it was, oh yeah, this will be right. You know, I'll, I'll just I'll sort of continue these stories that I'm working on, and then. Um, but then he drops it, uh, and he drops it almost completely, and then just recycles stuff from the uh, from from his older world. But then the two of them come together, and the Lord of the Rings is the result. The, the Lord of the Rings is is um, you know when basically when the Hobbit really sort of begins to crystallize and work together with all of those older things when, you know, when, when they all combine together and now, you know, when that world becomes the third age, 
with the Silmarillion stuff behind it as the first stage, that's when I think, you know, the real richness of Tolkien's world and, 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 and Tolkien's whole imaginative creation really comes together. Um, and it starts with, you know, Bilbo. It starts with a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Um, but you're absolutely right as far as his own writing is concerned and as far as his storytelling is concerned. I mean, I do think that if we don't get the hobbit, and even if we don't get the hobbit like it is, you know, that is with its with its roots in children's story um, and yet, or, or rather with its beginnings in, in, in children's story, but with its roots back into, you know, the the, 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 the epics and sagas, and but then stepping forward right and bringing those things into sort of more serious and mature consideration by the end of the hobbit yeah i mean that that is i mean i i agree that's sort of ultimately kind of where the lord of the rings comes from really yeah you know and i do wonder there's absolutely no way to ever know the answer to this question but you know we do know that he was he was he had gotten some stuff published and was attempting to get things published mostly poetry if i recall correctly yeah. prior to the hobbit yeah. and then it wasn't he did not actually submit the book it was i think a student or a friend of the family who had yes. connections to Alan Unwin who who's and i just kind of wonder sometimes if what his thought was. I mean, I almost wonder, it's like, oh, well, this will never get published. I mean, it's the poetry that, you know, right. it's my poetry that really deserves to be published. You know what yes. I mean? It's like, I just wonder sometimes if it would, you know, kind of took him by surprise that a publisher would actually be interested in this book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's certainly very different, you know, it's certainly... Well, especially when you look at, yeah, when you look at what he was trying to get published before. Yes, yes exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, he's like, uh, he's like, Oh, you're interested in The Hobbit. That's great. How about The Lay of Lathian? Would you like to publish that? Um, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's much more worthy. <clears throat> That's you where know, he even, went with Even it. back to his days, you know, I mean, taken from John Garth's book, which is not, not just a great book talking about his World War One experience, but an awesome book talking about his years at King Edward's school. I mean, even back in those days, you know, he and his friends were very lofty in their poetry and in their ambitions in terms of, you know, their literary ambitions. I mean, if somebody had told, the, you know, Tolkien at age 17 or 18 that this is, you know, his first fame would come with this book, he would have been like, no way. Right. I mean, to kill myself now, you know. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. What's the point of going on? If that, if that's, right, yes. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So it is just an interesting thing. Like I say, I mean, we will never know for sure, but just sort of, it's just an interesting I, I just wonder how much, how surprised he was, you know, when he got the word that they were actually going to go forward with publishing this book. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's a, I mean, I, I do think that that's a really good point. But, you know, bringing all this stuff, um, bringing all this stuff back to Thorin um, and oh, beginning... Yeah. And beginning to move forward into where we think Thorne is going to be going. Here's my, here's one of my big questions. Um, thinking again about the Golden King scene at the end of <clears throat> the Desolation of Smaug. Where exactly is the arrow pointing with Thorin? We've had these, you know, things have been building towards Thorin, you know, going crazy, and things have been. Um, uh, you know, we saw the sort of the, the the escalation of tension between Thorin and Bilbo over the Arkenstone. Um, but doesn't it seem at the end of film two that he's taken a turn for the better? Um, 
is it just me who who was getting that? Yeah, at, yeah. At the end of the second film, I mean, from that well, moment. Yeah, it's interesting. Sorry, go go ahead, go ahead. No, 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 no. I, well, I was just going to say it's interesting you say that because I was just thinking as you were talking that in fact, you know. I don't see that much dragon sickness. I mean, the dragon sickness that we've heard about has all been from interviews from Jackson and the actors. I mean, I think you even brought this up, that we don't see it that clearly in movie two. And and, and I agree with you. I think he maybe starts to go down one path, but then the need to defeat the dragon pulls him completely out and puts him back to where he was before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that scene, and, you know, like, you know, when he says, like, you know, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the actual line. It's the one about, you know, we'll all burn together. Right, right. The one that wasn't in the book. Yeah, he made, yeah. The, Richard Armitage made a point of saying wasn't canon, which I thought was right. precious. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, I, for, in that scene, um, you know, that sentiment, it's like a little crazy, you know? I mean, like, it's, 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 it's a little bit, you know, wild-eyed thing to say. But nevertheless, it's still a, a, it's like a, a, a leader thing to say. You, you know? know, it's kind of consistent with how he's been. Like I said, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, he's kind of been this impulsive, hot-headed kind of warrior, you know, from as an old bizarre forward in the movies. So it's not that out of character. You know, it's not a crazy thing really for Thorin to say in the heat of the moment, pardon right. the pun. Right, exactly. And and it's a unifying thing. You know, it's a right. we will stick together and I will lead right. you and he's going to go in front and take the risks. He's the one who like basically puts himself as bait to lure uh to lure Smaug up towards the statue and and you know, I mean it's um it's 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 I see what Thorin does at the end there as an entirely good sign. You know, that um he seems to be and this is to me of crucial importance when I'm thinking about the Battle of Five Armies, because you know, as I've talked about before, as I think we, you know, we're talking about last time in the context of discussing the Battle of Five Armies, um, when Thorin charges out of the gate, that is the turning point for him in the book. You know, when he's turning from, um, when 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 he's turning from, um, you know, the the I mean. Because that's the last we've seen him since Descendant of Rats, you know, since he threatened to throw Bilbo off the wall to his death. Um, he, uh, the next time we see him is when he charges out of the mountains. Or I guess, you know, you could say the last thing we got from him was just arrows shot from the wall when they come to ask for the treasure and to give the Arkenstone. But of course, the, you know, Thorin won't even come out because Dan is about to arrive. And so, you know, he's getting ready to attack them. Um, so... Again, it's a dramatic turning point for Thorin when he has decided to do the right thing, when he has decided to embrace being a real king and a real leader instead of, you know, being a selfish, self-absorbed, um, uh, you know, uh, jerk like he was being at the gate. Um, right. That shift was already less dramatic in the negative direction but now <clears throat> has turned back. So my question is, are we, are we going to get more of that? That is, is he going to relapse? Are we going to see him get crazier again? Um, you know, there are several ways that this could, that this could happen, you know. Um, uh, 
that is to say, he's, um, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Yana says, for instance, that he wouldn't be surprised if the dragon sickness will still come into play being exposed to right. the treasure itself uh, well, and the Arkenstone thing still hasn't run its course. Um, right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we could still see him go a little bit crazy again or a lot crazy again, you know, more crazy, you know, dip down further than he dipped before. Um, but see... <laughs> I just had, I just had this vision of, of, of Thorin looking at the Arkenstone and his eyes turn into into spirals, you know, like in a crazy. Right, 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 exactly. <laughs> and then then he goes berserk. Right. Um, I, yeah, exactly. See, and it's exactly that cartoon image that you raise there is exactly why I don't believe that's going to happen because it would be cartoonish. Right. It would. Well, you know, and the reason I was thinking actually that was because, again, I was going to bring up the pacing issue. How you know how, we're not if he does you know fall into the abyss of madness, it's going to have to take a very short space of time in this movie because yes. of all the other things that are going to be happening. Yes. Yes. You know? No, I agree. I think I. It seems to me. This is why I can't imagine him just like being like, "Hey, the dragon's dead. Come, let us like." you know, roll around in the, in the treasure, like a, you know, like demented Scrooge McDucks and, and get like, you know, and, 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 and go crazy about the gold. I don't think it's going to be about the treasure. It could be about the Arkenstone, but I don't, I don't believe the dragon when the dragon talks about the effect the Arkenstone is going to have on Thorin. I don't think that Smaug, it might be a controversial thing to say, but I don't think that Smaug is being straight up about this. Um, well, that's what I think we're, you know, I wonder if we're just like being, ma- there's a mass hypnosis going on by Jackson and everybody else saying there will be dragon sickness. You know, <laughs> so we come into the movie expecting dragon sickness, but in fact, really, it's not that obvious. Or Right, which is good. I mean, I, I yeah, I, and I respect that. I mean, if it had it just been, had Thorin simply just become what Thror was, you know, which is like going around and fingering his gold and, 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 and you know, <laughs> cackling maniacally. Had he been doing that, that would not have been very interesting, nor would it have been very compelling. And I agree with you about pacing, too. We're not going to get um, a, just sort of a long decline down, especially since the decline that was already happening in film two has, it seems to me, been interrupted. Um, you know, he's already turned away right. from that. Um, so, right. in order to 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 you know re begin the decline, he's going to have to go sharply downhill. Um, and I think, Quickly. yeah, and that it seems to me requires. Um, is going to require an incident. You know, there's going to be some, um, uh, some, something that occurs which impels him, you know, which really pushes him off the edge. If he's going off the edge, he's got to be shoved off the edge uh, by something. Now, this could, I could still imagine that happening in several ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Several people were, um, uh, were, pointing things out, um, that is, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, you know, the pot, like the, uh, the, the death perhaps of, of, you know, Feely or Keely, you know, could, could do this. Well, and Bill must be trained with the Arkenstone. I mean, yes. Might be, 
Yes. Well, exactly. I mean, that's that's where I think it's it's sort of most likely. And somebody, I was looking for the one I forget who said this. Kate Nebel had a list that I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, well, no, but I was looking at. Um, well, I forget who it was. Somebody was saying about how uh, they think it's going to really bother him that he didn't kill. Smaug. Oh, oh, Brian. I think it was Brian. Those were, yeah. Was that Brian? Um, Brian, yeah. Perturbed yeah, by not being the one who lands the killing blow. On yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Um, I, I could see that too. But to me, I think the most likely thing is what he's going to, what he would perceive as a simple flat out betrayal from, by Bilbo. Right. You know, right. that right here at the bitter end, having, having done all this stuff, having sacrificed all these things, having, having come, you know, all this way and, and been through everything. Now, at the very end, his entire quest, his entire purpose, his entire attempt to reestablish his kingdom and his homeland for his people and to regain his throne is thwarted by the totally unanticipated and, as far as he can see, you know, like, without even obvious motivation, um, betrayal by the Hobbit that, you know, that they brought along with them, that in the end, the whole thing. And so, like, anger against... Bilbo anger even against Gandalf because like this was probably a plot. Remember Thorin in the book accuses Gandalf of that, you know, that of 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 you know Gandalf of being in league um against him. You know, so so that idea of betrayal, you know, him believing that he's been betrayed is uh is something that I could see shoving him way over the edge. Um so I you know, but then Jonathan yeah. Harder makes the excellent point and he says, but Bilbo's betrayal would have to be triggered by some craziness on Thorne's part, wouldn't it? I mean, because it's true in the book. Uh, if if he hadn't already been acting um, irrationally in the book, Bilbo wouldn't have handed over the Arkenstone in the first place. Um, so it's true. We still need, and this is where I still don't know, and it's because I don't know, I still don't understand about the Arkenstone. I don't understand what it does. I don't understand the full significance that it has, not just symbolically. I think I think I do understand its symbolic significance in the in the uh, in the movies. They've made that reasonably clear. Um, but its actual significance, like its role in their plan, it's clear that stealing the Arkenstone was the core of their plan. Um, if it actually has a function, if it actually performs some magical thing if it in some you know whether that's you know sending up the dwarf signal to summon dan or whatever i don't know but um if it actually is not a mere symbol that they're that they're trying to acquire then um i don't know like i said i i to me that makes it has a big impact on Bilbo's theft of the Arkenstone mm-hmm. and Bilbo's handing of uh, handing of it over. It's one of the reasons why, when we've been talking about that in previous episodes, I am very <clears throat> I am very willing to consider the idea that Bilbo is not going to be trying to hand over the Arkenstone in the same way that you know in the same way and for the same reasons that he does in the film because it seems to be um, it seems to be just different. It seems to work differently. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, right. Um, Jana says, I don't think Thorin would have to be completely crazy to refuse the Elven King and Bard. They might be showed as being unreasonable, too. 
Yes, but why does Bilbo make the... I mean, Bilbo clearly is motivated in the book by the fact that he believes Thorin is doing the wrong thing. And when Thorin starts talking about, like, you know, uh, executing and, and, and torturing any, anyone, you know, any one of his friends, any one of the, you know, the 13 of them who, uh, who keep the Arkenstone from him, um, you know, when he starts making Feanor-like speeches about the Arkenstone, that's when Bilbo's like, okay, we're done here. Right. Um, first of all, he's acting unjustly, and now he's like acting crazy too. Um, so I, Bilbo, am going to do the right thing, even though nobody else is doing the right thing. And let's see if we can bring these people to their senses. That seems to be his motivation in the book. I can't see, in order for Bilbo to get anywhere close to there, um, Jonathan is right that Thorin has to already kind of be over the edge um, for that to happen. He can't just. Um, Thorin can't just be opposing them. Um, yeah, Yana says well, maybe... You know, Thorin, Thorin's already kind of displayed that kind of behavior. I mean, he's stubborn. Yep. He's he's opinionated. He won't budge when it comes to his hatred of the elves. You know what I mean? It's like, I could just see that sort of ramping up, but not necessarily call it sickness, to a point where Bilbo would, you know, would want to take action. Right. Um, I mean, it just seems like that's kind of the trap that's been laid, if you will, in terms of Thorin's behavior and personality. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, but uh, but again... Yana, Yana makes a good point of maybe he starts to get paranoid, you know? I mean, maybe there's some serious, like, really noticeable sort of paranoia, um, you're all against me kind of behavior. Okay, well, here here's a theory. I'm not especially fond of this idea. Um, This is in my... I think it might happen, or it would be consistent with what we've seen in the second film, but I kind of hope that this isn't the answer kind of suggestions. But remember, we have the foundation laid for a tragic misunderstanding between Bilbo and Thorin. And I'm thinking of the scene in which Bilbo was refusing point-blank to tell Thorin whether or not he found the Arkenstone. Right. Why is Bilbo refusing? Because Smaug just told him if he gives right. the Arkenstone to Thorin, it's going to wreck Thorin. So it's quite possible that we have Bilbo withholding the Arkenstone for Thorin's own good, right? Because he thinks he's doing a favor to Thorin, though Thorin is obviously unappreciative of this favor. But Thorin, feeling that he's being betrayed and being increasingly suspicious of Bilbo, who was looking about as suspicious as it's possible to look, um, when uh, when when um, Thorin was asking him in the second film, um, and so Thorin getting more and more frustrated and aggravated and and suspicious because it looks like Bilbo is concealing the Arkenstone and betraying him, and having that be... What, but Bilbo's motivation for that is, again, that he's just trying to protect Thorin from himself, um, but he doesn't even dare, dare tell Thorin that he actually has the Arkenstone because he can't trust, you know... Nor so, any of the other dwarves, likely. I mean, even Balin, he couldn't really tell. Right, exactly. So, um... Again, so so we have the situation between them escalating, but it escalates not because Thorin is sort of acting in the wrong as he does in the in in the book, but just because of this kind of as I say, it's, a, it's just a tragic misunderstanding. Um, and, and that's 
that's actually what much tragedy is based on. That's right. exactly the kind of situation that right. many tragic stories are based on. So exactly. that makes sense to me. And, exactly. and, and, you know, we wouldn't know. The first time we'll hear of, you know, out loud of Bilbo's concern about Thorin is when he takes it to the men and the elves. He'll tell them that he's concerned. I mean, that's, I think, the only way other, or on his face, it'll be, you know, the wonderful Martin Freeman, and we'll see it on his face, and he won't say, I mean, he's not going to be able to actually tell out loud unless he's alone with Roak or something. <laughs> right. You know, why is it he's keeping the, the Arkenstone? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's, um, this is in one way an attractive idea. I said I'm not really particularly fond of it, but it's an attractive idea in the sense that, um, it's a way of creating tension between Bilbo and Thorin that is comparable to the tension in the book. Um, we could see this leading to Thorin threatening to throw Bilbo to his death, for instance, and yet neither character is in the wrong. Um, and that, I right. think, is an option that well, I... That would make a much more poignant story, I think. Really, what well, you think? But it would also... And, but it's, I could also imagine it being very attractive to the filmmakers who don't want to transform Thorin into a villain at this point. Right. Um, right. Uh, so, anyway. Um, It'll be interesting to see. I mean, I... It could work. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting... I, I think, you know, if, 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 if I remembered to mention this to Laura, I mean, a conundrum for this episode, a good one would be about, you know, does Thorin really, you know, obviously go mad? Mm-hmm. Uh, or not, you know, I mean, I, that's, it's just going to be really interesting to see, because I think, you know, kind of what we've, what we've fleshed out here is you could still have the same story, or maybe even a much more poignant story without that overt mm-hmm. madness. Yeah, and that, that really is kind of what I expect. I mean, I expect him to get a little intense at times, um, mm-hmm. but I don't expect him just to go crazy. I got, I think Smaug is lying. I mean, I just, I don't, right. well, and for one thing, we know that somebody's got to be wrong, right? We overheard Gandalf and Elrond talking about how there's, like, congenital madness in the line of Durin. Right. Um, right. And Smaug saying about how the Arkenstone drove them crazy. Well, who's right? You know, they can't both be right. right. Maybe they're both wrong, but they can't both be right. Um, because the line of Durin extends a good deal further back than the Arkenstone, which was found during the lifetime of Thror within the film world. Apparently. You know, I wonder if that line, I, I actually wonder if that line in, in Elrond had more to do with the scene we've never seen except in trailers, which is the crazy Thryon, you know, dropping down on top of Gandalf and being kind of a crazy boy. It, it just dawned on me that, you know, that might have really have been more of a foreshadow of that than anything, or in addition to Thorin. But anyway, so side, mm-hmm. side comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, then, and Gerald brings up the fact of the ring, too, but, you know... The we Dwarven ring, yeah. Which, of course, has become a phantasm <laughs> in the movies. It got mentioned. It got it mentioned. mentioned. Very it much did. to it my surprise. It's in the Lego set. And it's in the Lego... Well, some ring is in the Lego set. That's right. You're not sure which ring. Some yet We're to be revealed... one ring. Yeah, well, I mean, but... Could, exactly. be the, could be the Witch King's ring, I suppose. Yeah, I'm... Um, I'm still, uh, I still have, uh, needless to say, an unswerving and intrinsic faith in the Lego sets. So um, I shall, <laughs> I shall never doubt the Lego sets again. 
which one's been announced, but we haven't seen the good pictures. We'll wait until the game. Yeah, yeah, we saw some like teaser pictures of the Lego set, but it was lame. You know, I want the new one. It's the Aeroboard Lego set's been announced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is fine, but I want the I want the I want the real thing, man. I want the I want the pictures on the back of the box. I want the whole deal. I'm not gonna. Who's getting Who's getting flipped into the air? Exactly. I want to see the. I want to. I want. I want to see the the exactly which bits in the Lego set are mechanized and in what ways and and uh i will say the one thing i found interesting is that feely is one of the characters in that yes i agree feely was in the set but i but i'm i'm saving myself i'm saving myself for the lego episode i think they said in october so we'll be we'll be looking at lego sets awesome can't wait for the lego set episode been waiting all year for the lego set episode um uh Okay. Anyway, so <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, you know, Kate asked this, and you know, I, I had forgotten to mention at the at the top of the hour, um, or at the top of the show, that Dave, the reason Dave's not here is that he's he's at San Diego Comic Con this yeah. weekend. And by the way, Lego apparently is going to be quite uh, in force there. You know, probably not just for the Hobbit, but for other things as well. So you know, I'll be interested to hear from Dave if he trips over any Legos, and if so, what were they? Absolutely. That's really, that's really, you know, Dave's exclusive interview with Peter Jackson will be of secondary interest compared no, to... it's like, Dave, we want to hear about the Legos. Exactly. Forget, I don't care that Legos. you talked to Richard Armitage or that's Martin right. Freeman. Yeah, whatever. Tell us about the Legos. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. So we'll see, we'll see what, uh, what, what Dave is able to dig up uh, at Comic-Con. Is Dave doing a Comic Con broadcast? This is to be determined. Yep, we're trying to we're figure this out. Try and get together to do a special, um, special broadcast of, of, of Dave's brain dump. He's going to be Comic Con brain dump. Is it? Is it? Week, is it tonight that he's going to be? Um, that he's going to be waiting in line all night for Hall H. Yeah, and I saw somebody said something that I don't think they opened up the line until like three a.m. Okay. But bottom line, he's going to be in the Hall H uh, line, and with the hopes of getting into the uh, the Hobbit panel tomorrow in the yeah. Hall H. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so that will be. Um, uh, and when he kind of said in his note to us, he kind of I got the impression that his choice after that is either to continue to sit in his seat in Hall H for the other panels that are going to come up, or he'll go out and wander around the convention hall. So we'll right. see what he does. Right. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. It, it would be it would be fun to uh, to do a you know live broadcast from the line to Hall oh, H that be cool? uh, would be would well, be he fun. He bought a he bought a brand new record you know high end super duper recorder. Yeah, that's awesome. It's actually so, like a, it's a it's a it's a newer version of the one that I use. Um, is it okay? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting actually. At Comic Con, a side thing, and it's like there was an announcement that Peter Jackson is going to be at Comic Con, like it was a big surprise, and I thought to myself. He needs to be there because all the actors that will be participating with him in the panel are also there to, to you know, flog other things. I mean, Richard Armitage is there for another movie. Right. Uh, Graham, Graham Attach is there for Outlander. Uh, Tariel is there for her book. I mean, you know, they're, they're doing other things. So he need, Jackson needs to be there to remind these people when they're in their panel. What movie is it we're talking about now? Because <laughs> it's right. been a while right. for them. Anyway. Right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, Lynn was just uh, g- giving us the link to the uh, the, right. the the Lego thing on the One Ring dot net. Yeah, th- that's the one that we saw, which is okay, but I'm unsatisfied. I'm not impressed with it. I'm not impressed. It's too far away. I need to. See, I want it like I, I. I want the full details, man. Like it's cool to see. You know, like it's okay, but it's a small picture, and I want the <laughs> I want the full Lego marketing effect. Uh, I, I insist upon the pictures on the back of the box. 
Um, but um, anyway, yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, so this, yes, Erica is saying she was hoping that today would include Dave in line from Comic-Con. Not, not quite yet. Today is still Dave in transit to Comic-Con. So we're, we're yeah. a little previous for that. But we hope we, we, we stay tuned. Uh, you know, uh, stay tuned to... Hound him. Yeah, to our Facebook pages, to my Tolkien Professor Twitter feed, uh, to see, and we'll let you guys know if we have any news about a uh, uh, unexpected we injury. We have to get know, him early, you know, we, I want to get him beginning of the week so he doesn't forget stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah at the very least we want to get him at the beginning of next week. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so back to let's, let's, talk back about, to let's talk about Thorne's actual death here, which was theoretically yes. the topic of the episode, um, and which we've not beginning. But, I mean, I, the stuff well, we've been talking about we, is, to me, the most, release the, the most... Should we release the Kraken? Should we release the riddle? Or, or <laughs> talk about the release the Kraken. <laughs> yeah, okay. Let's go ahead and post the, the riddle. Like so, okay. our riddle today is just about uh, Thorne's, this, the, the scene with Bilbo. You know, the, the big scene with Bilbo. Where will it happen? Um, and this might seem a sort of a simple question, like who cares where they happen to be standing when, or sitting or lying or whatever, kneeling when they have the conversation. <laughs> but I actually think it makes a, a big change in the whole dynamics of the scene. Um, so our riddle is where will the deathbed conversation occur? Um, and our options are a, in a tent in Dale, that's the book answer. B on the battlefield. See inside the either mountain during or after, right? Either right. during or after. Like say, you know, either either like the conversation between Thorn and Bilbo happens with like, you know, the battle still swirling around them, or you know, they're like the two of them are there in the middle of the field of slain and uh, having the conversation. Um, with some great Howard Shore music in the background. Great Howard Shore music. Uh, yeah, vampire bats uh, 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 fixing upon oh, the fallen. Oh uh, you know, all that kind of thing. And um, anyway, so that's B. Uh, C. Uh, is, vampire bats are not an obligatory element of B. For B. <laughs> you can, in fact, vote for B without voting for the vampire bats. I just want to make that perfectly clear. Um, C is inside the mountain. D is the conversation doesn't occur, which we have to ask just for the sake of completeness. Um, though I am no more thinking that this that will not happen than I was thinking that Thorne would not die, uh, right. and or E none of the above. Um, the none of the above options are comparatively limited, um, but. Um, uh, and if anybody can think of any besides any that we uh, pose, yeah, the only E answer Trish and I could come up with was like. Like on top of the mountain, <laughs> like you know, yeah. if he, I, I, I don't know. It, it's it's a little hard to imagine where else they could. My be. scenario was something along the lines of an echo of the end of Return of the King, where Gandalf asks the eagle, you know, an eagle to to take Thorin up from the battlefield because he's wounded, and you know, right. the eagle picks him up and deposits him like by the secret door on the side of the mountain. Right, but they'd also have to bring Bilbo there for the conversation, you know. That, that, oh, that's true, yeah. Or Bilbo know. could just race through, race through inside the mountain and get to the secret door. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. I, I, so I don't know. Um, taking him up to the top of the mountain is kind of attractively, you know, Silmarillion echoing. Uh, at least I yeah. find that echo attractive. Uh, you know, golfing. Yeah, it's golfing. like like the, yeah. Yeah, the, the, you know, yeah, the, the funeral be, uh, beer of Fingolfin. 
Oh, Yana says on the shores of the lake. That's that's another possibility. (laughs) Thorn is killed and then falls into the river, and his corpse washes down, (laughs) and they have to drag the lake to find his body. But he's still alive and gives his speech to Bilbo, like you know, vomiting water uh, out of his lungs. Um, It might, you know, kind of cut into the dramatic effect a little bit, but it could still work. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the context of the of the death scene, I think, is going to be interesting. Um, but again, and what I'm interested in in this question is because I think it 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 actually has it provides a really important context to the sort of the nature of the conversation. Um, if they meet on the battlefield, it will say like basically the book answer right is an attendant in Dale. Think about what is the what is the significance of the fact that he is an attendant in Dale. Um, there are several things that we can see there, right? One is the fact that Bilbo has to be taken there after the battle. Remember, Bilbo wasn't involved in the battle, and he, the battle is long over when he finally wakes up from his concussion um, while invisible, right? Um, so the fact that it's a Tentendale instead of on the battlefield is not only shows the timing that it's well after the battle, but more importantly, again, Bilbo wasn't in the battle. So the idea of if Thorin and Bilbo meet on the battlefield, it's going to be because Bilbo's connection to Thorin during the battle, and therefore Bilbo's involvement in Thorin's death. Not that I'm accusing Bilbo of killing Thorin, but you understand, like, the fact that he's going to be involved there in, in, right. in Thorin's final battle. Um right. That really changes the dynamics, not only of Bilbo's character in general, but of their conversation in particular. If right. the if the deathbed conversation comes as a product of Bilbo just having stepped in and saved Thorin's life again, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. so say you know, say the story happens that you know uh, Thorin thinks that Bilbo has betrayed him for whatever reason. Bilbo actually does it, and then in the battlefield they encounter each other on the battlefield again. Uh, but like Bilbo comes in and rescues Thorin, and Thorin's response to that is to be like, oh, "You're all right after all, Bilbo Baggins. Let's let's recapitulate the man hug that we had on the Carrick at the end of film one. Except this time, I'm dying, and I'll also bleed on you while I do this. Like <laughs> that. That's a very different context for the deathbed conversation right. that we get in the book, right? In the book, yeah. we get it's after the battle. Bilbo's not involved in the battle. Bilbo was utterly irrelevant to Thorin's death itself." Instead, Thorin has just been reflecting on Bilbo, saying, I now, from my current perspective, at the edge of the grave, and after my, you know, my conversion experience, you know, after, um, after I turned the corner and decided to become a catastrophe instead of a villain, um, I now see things differently. And I now not only appreciate the reasons why you did what you did with the Arkenstone, but I now value your whole point of view more. Um, you know, that's the heart, that sentence about, you know, if more people, um, valued, you know, uh, you know, food and, and cheer and, uh, and, 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 you know, food and song and good cheer, um, above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. That sentiment is the sentiment of someone who is reflecting on the meaning of life before he's dying, you know, in, in in relative quiet. In quiet, yes. So yes. that so a, 
I, it's hard to imagine. I mean, I can imagine them putting that line in the mouth of Thorin on the battlefield because that line is in the book, but it wouldn't right. fit. I mean, I don't think yeah. it would fit nearly so well um, in that kind of a context. And not to mention the fact, if Bilbo has been involved, even if he doesn't succeed in saving Thorin's life, if Bilbo is involved with Thorin on the battlefield in some presumably admirable and possibly heroic way, that's going to color their conversation there at the end. Yeah. Um, so, so again, I, th- this is why I think the where does it occur question um, is, 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 is my indirect way of wanting to get at these bigger issues about the quality of that, you know, the nature of that conversation and how, uh, you know, where the emphasis is going to lie in their deathbed conversation. Right. Now, Inside the Mountain... That's also a different... But, oh, anyway, hang on a second. I only did half of the significance of the Tenton Dale answer, right? One half is that it's not on the battlefield, that it's after the battlefield. It's it's now the battlefield recalled in tranquility, just like Wordsworth would do. Um, and so... But the other thing is that it's in a Tenton Dale, right? He has been taken into the camp of his former enemies. He's in one of the tents of the army that was lying, besieging his fortress, mm-hmm. right? It is a, it is, it is, um, a, a very clear sign of the peace that has broken out, they just—they didn't just declare a temporary truce until the goblins were were killed, and now we can get back to fighting each other. The fact that he has been taken into their camp shows that you know peace has been established, you know, good and proper, um, and that I think is an important thing. And also, um, things attached uh, the, the 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 peace. Peace, in a sense, sort of like on their term. Again, they've brought him into their camp, right? They have accepted Thorin and honored Thorin. Um, it's different from if it's inside the mountain, right? Inside the mountain right. now puts it all into the regal king under the mountain context, yeah. right? You know, are we going to get the deathbed of a king? Right? Are we going to get Thorin lying in state in the gold, in, in you know, in surrounded by gold in Erebor? Um, and the thing is, that, it would seem to me, would be a very logical endpoint of the trajectory of Thorin's character. Well, I could see a very dramatic procession yep. from the tent and dale yep. to the mountain. Yeah, now we know he's going to get buried, right? We know he's going to yeah. get buried in the mountain, yeah. eventually. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the question is, is the procession a funeral procession into the mountain? Or do they carry him... To, I mean, I can easily imagine Thorin saying... Or do they carry him still alive? Right. Say, into, yeah. Either Thorin saying, or like Balin saying, he would want to die in Erebor. He doesn't yeah. want to die in some nasty tent in Dale. Saying, take me to Erebor. Right. Yes. Take me, to, yeah. take me to, the, to the house of my fathers. Um, right. Um, right. <laughs> Brian Vatterini says, bury me with my money. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sort of, sort of. Um, yeah, but I, the symbolic significance of that, I think, the symbolic significance of, of him uh, him dying, not just being buried, but dying in the mountain, um, right. uh, I think is, is, uh, is really powerful. Um, uh, not very powerful would be the conversation never occurring. Um, uh, yeah, like I say, I don't... Um, Oh, God, it. I can't imagine Jackson saying, oh, no, we don't need that. Right, yeah. <laughs> or Boyens, you know, it's like, no, no, they can, we can cut that out. Yeah, yeah. God, yeah I've, I've been reading through this book, and I found a bunch of scenes I think we can just do away with, and, you know, this one is pretty much at the top of my list. Like, you know, seriously. 
That doesn't you know, move the plot I, I forward a, at all. I have a side question that doesn't actually move us forward on the riddle at all, but I'll just pose it. Is I wonder if the Arkenstone will actually get buried with Thorin, or if it'll get put back in the top of the throne now that it's because its significant has significance has changed so much in the movie that it's the you know it's the symbol of the king under the mountain. I I, I wonder if they're actually going to bury it with Thorin now. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's an excellent question. Um, uh, we'll, see. well, well, that another conundrum possibility. Actually. Yeah. It's actually an excellent conundrum. I like that one even yeah. better. Yeah, okay. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Boy, you know, I, A, B, and C, all three have very good, are all very good, I think, ways yeah. to portray. Yeah, I, I consider E unlikely because it's hard to find a really, truly plausible alternative. Yeah. Um, and, and D, I find... Um, so appalling, I refuse to recognize that it could exist. <laughs> but, um, but I, I, I think that A, B, and C are all of them really good possibilities. Um, um, Mark Flessa has a really cool idea. He says, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see Bilbo giving Thorin the Arkenstone on his deathbed and Thorin refusing it. Um, mm. Yeah, that would be interesting. That would be interesting. Um, symbolically, I'm not sure. Um, I can see Thorne taking it and handing it to Diane. Yes. 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 Um, yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> Bilbo's I, like, gee, sorry I took this. I didn't know it was going to lead to your death. Yeah, right. I'm sorry. <laughs> Really kind of miscalculated on the whole Arkenstone thing. I, I, it's just you know the dragon said this, and I, I feel really dumb in retrospect, you know. But uh, uh, yeah. Um. <laughs> so yes, yes, I did. To answer the question you asked an hour ago, yes, I do have the Arkenstone. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. I. Yeah. In fact, I've really had it all along. I was to, n- never mind. I just I, f- I feel stupid. But here you are. Um. Uh. Yeah. 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 Maybe that's just how it should go. To be very dramatic, be very mo- moving scene. Um. Uh. Anyway. Uh. I have to say, I am inclining on my, you know, oft declared principle for season three, um, in the interest of choosing what is awesome over what is likely. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with C. So what's C. the most awesome of ABC? C. C, you think? C is the most awesome. Um, I love the idea. Oh, God, it just, the number just went up as a result of yeah. you saying that. <laughs> Fools! Fools! Be, the numbers of A and B should go up. As yeah, exactly. Exactly, yes. Um, yeah, I... I um, I do think that, but C, I, I, I find C Brian. really compelling. I find C Brian really said he compelling. Seed before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I find C really compelling. Um, as a way, just thinking back to what we spent most of the episode talking about, um, thinking about the way that Thorin's story trajectory goes. You know, thinking about the way in you know how will the last, you know. How will the last page of Thorin's life story go? The idea of him returning to the mountain and, um, you know, the, the whole return of the king 
thing is so prominent with Thorin. I mean, it is the center of the Thorin story in the film. The idea of having, you know, you could still capture this by having him die on the battlefield and show a, you know, a royal funeral in Erebor. Like, I mean, you can get there. Um, uh, but, um, so yeah, I mean, Timothy Fisher was just suggesting that, you know, that he dies on the battlefield and then, you know, we get the funeral procession. Yeah, but it's not the same. You know, it's hard to, I don't know. I mean, I, the idea, the image of Thorin dying as king, you know, in Erebor is a really attractive one. Um, so, yep, I'm going to go with C. I'm going to go with C. Again, I don't think it's likely, uh, necessarily. Um, if I had to choose what I believe to be most statistically likely, I'd say B. But Well, but you know, I mean, your point about the golden statue, you know, and the, and the symbolism of that, I mean, C continues kind of that, that trend, you know, the significance of Thorin being in the mountain before he dies. I, I, I I could definitely see that. And, you know, like I said, Jackson's proven to whether, of course, the question is whether Jackson actually saw as deep into that symbolism as you saw into it in the golden statue situation. But, um, but I can see that now. So I'm just, completely don't know what I'm going to say. So walking through all this, I mean, uh, B to me is a kind of a pellet, a Theodon on Pellinor Fields kind of death, you know, uh, where, where Bill, you know, Bilbo, and it could very be very well be similar in the sense that Bilbo has been fighting by Thorin's side kind of thing. And maybe even saved him, like you say, once, mm-hmm. if not twice on the battlefield, but then misses, misses the save on the third or you know, round. <laughs> right. Um, right. <laughs> oops, <laughs> I was tying my shoe. Um, <laughs> but, um, and, and that could be extremely poignant, you know, where the, where the, the, the sounds of the battle dim out, you know, and, and everything gets like, like blurred behind them. And it's just the two of them having this conversation, um, was kind of where I was at. Now the tent also that, you know, the whole idea of him being in, in, in the camp of what had been his enemies. Um, and I think in both of those cases, I, I don't think we could have either of those without having a funeral procession into the mountain. Um, but and the inside of the mountain. I mean, I, that's. I don't know. What, I don't know what I'm gonna. Say. Yeah, I. I mean, um, I. I do think. I mean, the funeral march into the mountain is like an absolute given. I mean, there's a zero percent chance yeah. that doesn't happen. I mean, that's obviously. Yeah, if, a thing. if he dies outside, well, there's gonna procession one way or the other. Um, like you say, I mean, he. Your, in your choice, it's a procession while he's still alive, being carried into the mountain. The other two is he's died and carried in. But yeah, I think that's just a given. Um, I don't. No, I don't know. I don't. I think I'm going to say B. Um, not any real good reason, other than perhaps just for the um, economy of film time. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's a poor reason for me to choose. Well, that. that's exactly why I. Um, that's exactly why I think it's statistically most likely. Because it's the most efficient by far. Right. You know, right. if you're going to move the deathbed scene into the mountain, you've got to basically introduce a whole new scene. Yeah. Whereas, you know, it can be appended. It can be like, it can be either like Theoden's death scene with the battle going on around them, or it can be like Boromir's death scene yeah. with the, all the enemy dead right. around them. Um, right. But it's a very natural kind of transition. Um, right. In that way, it's a very natural film transition, in particular. Right. 
right. Um, right. And I'm not even sure. I mean, you know, I'm calling it most awesome. I don't even know that it would necessarily work really well. I can imagine doing it, but when I imagine doing it, you know, what I imagine is Thorin lying there mortally wounded, and he knows he's going to die, and people being like, "We will get you help, Thorin," and Thorin saying no, but then just Thorin saying, you know, take me to Aragorn. You know, I wanted, right. I wanted, I wanted, right. I want to return to my home. I wanted, you know, if I'm going right. to die, I want to die in Erebor, and and you know, have like again, we've got a, a big Howard Shore moment, right? As like uh, you know, Dwalin and 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 Balin, you know, bear him up on their shoulders, oh my gosh, yeah. and we'll he... have the reprise of the of the theme of Doran, you know, the the Misty Mountains, yeah. To carry him. Yeah, exactly. And he so and you know and he he like staggers forward and enters into the hall of the king, right? You know, we see him walking in through the gates and and uh and okay, probably then he shouldn't say well, I'm back, but um <laughs> but anyway, uh that would kind of undo the dramatic moment. Tempted as I always am. I still think that would have been you know, the Bilbo best way. Has to say that at the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, anyway. Um, oh, 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 I, I did, as a side note, by the way, um, I did, it tickled me that I saw a, a serious news report that Jackson has promised that we're not going to have multiple endings in The Hobbit the way we did in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> well, yeah, the structure of it is totally different. Though I, I know, I know, though, I thought that was funny. Though I think he's lying. <laughs> I mean, because we are going to get still, I believe, what people, what your casual moviegoers will consider multiple endings. endings you know, sure. we'll get the climax of the, the battle and the, the death of Thorin, right. and that's going to seem like the end to a lot. But that's not going to be the end. Surely he'll be passing through Rivendell. I can't believe they would. Yeah, we've got to have some elements of the homeward bad. journey, right? We may have Saruman turning bad. Right, we may get a little glimpse. We, of yeah, we, we may we, we may have some White Council wrap up to do. Um, right, right. We may even have some. Meanwhile, where is Sauron uh, wrap right. up to do? That's right. Um, That's right. And we have the auction and the frame we narrative. Are we going to return? We've got to return to 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 right. Narrative. So, um, right. so I think he's lying. But anyway, um, <laughs> um, uh, shall we answer for? I'll channel Dave, yeah, and I'll say, "Damn you, Corey Olson!" I was going to go for A, but now I believe it's C. <laughs> How was that? That's pretty good. Actually, you know, I mean, maybe he would say, maybe he would say A. You think Dave would say A to this? Can we do that? We'll do that. Yeah, we'll do A. I was thinking he would say. Let's a. put Dave on A. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay, yeah. I'm showing not quite. Three quarters of people voted. Who, what, yeah, we'll see ignition of the eye of Exactly. Yeah, Brian is saying we'll see the ignition of the eye. Yeah, it, we, we need to have you know the the Nazgul all standing around because you know they've been working really hard and sprucing up Baradur <laughs> and and have Sauron one come an back and holding a feather duster. One in a exactly right, and, and then they'll have like a, a you know like a like a ribbon cutting ceremony at Baradur. Right. You know. Right. Um. Right. Yep. Yep. And uh, they're going to flip the switch, and the big we... eye will t- will light up. We talked about this before, and I, I would think it would be feasible for Jackson to do this just to remind us about him, which is Gollum leaving the Misty Mountains. No, yeah. no dialogue required. Yeah, that could be a part of the wrap up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, Timothy. There's not an all of the above answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're not going to have this conversation rambling. We're not going to have like a deathbed conversation between Thorin and Bilbo and then have them be like, exactly, have them be like, 
Shall we walk over there while we continue talking? <laughs> walk with me. Yes, exactly. Let us stroll while we have this conversation. Yeah. No, 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 no. You know, I could actually see, you know, the In the Mountain one, too. I think you, you just mentioned this, whereas maybe they're carrying him, like, on a stretcher or something. But when they get to the doors, he, he demands to be, you know, helped up. And he will walk through. Right. He'll walk through over the threshold on his own steam and, then, of course, collapse after that. But that would yep. be another. I could see this. Very, very. I could see this. Yeah. Um, um, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, Robert Brown, Death Eagle. You know, I, I was telling Corey beforehand with, you know, when we were talking about the none of the above, and I said it could be that Gandalf asked the Eagles to go get him, you know, which wouldn't be out of the ordinary because he did the same thing with Frodo and Sam at the end of Return of the King, thinking that Frodo and Sam were dead. And I said, well, I'm sure the Eagles, you know, this could mean that the Eagles actually have a sideline. You know, corpses are us. You call right, us. Right. We'll, we'll pick corpse removal you. in a jiffy. Corpse removal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Corpse retrieval really is what they is what they're yeah, offering. Yeah. Corpse retrieval. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You call Do you have us, a loved we'll... one who has died in some kind of heroic and out of the way fashion? <laughs> <laughs> we can arrange to retrieve call the body us. of your Our loved one. Are standing by. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, I'll have to say when I post this up on Facebook that we just laughed and laughed through the death of Thor. <laughs> um, yeah. Just yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Download our app. Download our app. Yep. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, uh, well, good. Okay. Well, this was, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's yeah, that, that'll work. You know, I'm, that'll work. Yeah, that'll work. I'm going to sit here and write. Oh, so actually we have 82% voted according to my story. Okay, good. Yeah, let's close the poll. Should we close it? Okay, we'll close the share. All righty. And then um, uh, I think we're, are we, I think we're wrapped up on the main part. We have some cool announcements to make, I know. So Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, uh... <clears throat> Though I would like to point out that I seem to have, I've, have led at least 30% of the people <laughs> down the primrose path with me here. Uh, Although Brian made the point of saying he seed before. Yeah, I think I think Brian was the oh. only one crazy enough to vote for that uh, before I made my pitch. But um, somebody uh, on the Riddles in the Dark page said something like, uh, "Damn you, Corey Olson! You're more persuasive this year than you have been any other year." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, cool. That's good. Cool. All right. Um, yeah. So announcements. Um, the first announcement is a is a is a particularly exciting announcement, and this is actually the first time I'm announcing this anywhere. Um, and actually, you know, those of you who are here with me, to, you know, with us here today, are some of the main people that I wanted to deliver this announcement to. Um, uh, Signum University, the the academic institution um, behind the Mythgard Institute, and all of this other stuff, we are. Um, we are looking for help. We, we've been building um, a staff. We've had a lot of people who have been helping us out in various ways. Um, we have a large team of people now um, who are coming together to work, you know, as many hours a week as you can um, and, uh, and, and really helping us out with a whole bunch of things. I mean, we have a, a great deal of work being done. Um, by our excellent team of semi-volunteers. And I say semi-volunteers because although we're not in a place where we can afford to pay fat salaries at this point, um, we what we can offer is work-study credit. Or thin salaries. Or thin salaries, <laughs> for that matter. Um, uh, exactly. Um, what we... But, 
what we can give is tuition remission. If you are interested in our MythGuard classes, if you have been interested in our MythGuard classes and would like to take our MythGuard classes but have not been able to afford our MythGuard classes, um, we, of course, try to make our MythGuard classes as affordable as we possibly can, and we charge as little as we can possibly charge for them. Um, but uh, we do still have to charge for them because teachers deserve to be paid for what they do. But, um, uh, but nevertheless... What we are offering now is essentially a work-study program. So if you would like to get involved um, at MythGuard and Signum and help out with what we're doing, we would be happy to thank you by giving you tuition remission for our classes so that you could take classes with us uh, for free or rather in exchange um, for uh, your assistance with the stuff that we're doing. So if you are interested in this, if you are interested in the possibility of either auditing or taking for credit, um, one of the classes that we offer, one or more of the classes that we offer um, with the MythGuard Institute, um, then uh, you are. I encourage you to sign up. We have, uh, uh, Gabrielle says, what would helping out involve? Really, there are lots of different options. Um, let me tell you a little bit about some of the options that we have. We need, um, we need help with people on the outreach front, that is, people to help with, um, with press media, people, you know, so if you have journalism experience, we need you. Um, if you, uh, we need help with social media, uh, you know, uh, you know, generating social media content. That's another area where we need help. Um, there's a bunch of more kind of, uh, you know, office, yeah, business oriented yeah. work. We need, I mean, if anyone with bookkeeping or accounting experience would be fantastic. Um, we, uh, fundraising, fundraising, you know, we, you know, we definitely will have fundraising projects. We will have, um, uh, you know, we're doing, we're putting into place a big new student record system this year. So there's going to be uh, lots of fun work to be done in the in the wild uh, and crazy world of data entry. Um, uh, Tobias asks, "Can you live out even uh, help out even if you live overseas?" Yes, indeed. In fact, Absolutely. some of our team leaders uh, are overseas. Um, we have you know we have people in leadership roles um, in on the Signum staff um, who are based in uh, in Europe. So our goal is world domination. Uh, Yes. At least world inclusion. At least that's step one (laughs) is global inclusion. Uh, uh, But but, but yeah, no, absolutely. Um, There's it's it's one of the things about Mythgard and Signum is that, you know, we are, um, you know, we are a, 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 a completely virtual entity, which means we are a totally global entity. So absolutely. You can help out if you live overseas. Um, now, I think, um, by the way, I think, you know, to address uh, maybe a bit of Gabrielle's question, I assume this was in, involved in the question is, um, I, I, as far as I know, we don't really have a structure of saying X number of hours no. of volunteering, you know, goes to this much t- tuition remission, but it's almost like a case by case basis, isn't it really? Or- yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a basic, I give a basic rule of thumb, um, just so that you have some kind of idea. Um, if even if you can do if, if you could consistently you know, pitch in with like one or two hours, you know, one, two, three hours a week of work, we'd be happy to give you a, you know, an an auditor seat for that. If you can pitch in more, you know, more around the five hours or so a week, um, you know, that we'd be, I'd be happy to give you a, a, a full credit class enrollment for that. Um, um, so, 
yeah, there's definitely, um, and, and I'm, you know, we're very flexible with what we can, you know, with sort of placing people in different, in different roles and different jobs. Um, and there are lots of jobs to be done. So, um, I encourage you to, um, uh, so now people are, so there's a form, right? Is there is a form. Let me, let me both tell it to you so that those listening to the podcast can hear it and also, uh, show it to you. Um, uh, here, those of you who are watching, here it is on my screen. Um, the address is signumuniversity.org. So that's S-I-G-N-U-M university.org slash volunteer. That's easy. Yep. Signumuniversity.org slash volunteer. Um, so this is a very simple form. Um, just to give us your name and email address, um, estimate about you know, how many hours do you think you might be able to invest per week? And then, you know, give, do you have, you know, particular training or experience that might be useful or relevant, you know, that you think, and then tell us where you, um, how you know about us. And then you just type something at the bottom. I, you know, give us as much information as you can. The more information you give about the kinds of things you would like to do and the kinds of things you are qualified to do and the kinds of things that you are, you know, good at doing or have expertise in, the the more then you know the better I can sort of place people into uh you know onto teams that are gonna be, you know, doing stuff that would be that would be beneficial. But um like I said, our work study program, we have <clears throat> we have now over a dozen, about uh, going on twenty, um, people who have been contributing in this way, and the work that they have done has been just fan- fantastic. It's been yeah. it's been it's been a really transformative thing um, for Signum University. And you know, the other thing that I would say about this, although we can't afford to pay f- uh, <laughs> salaries, fat or thin, now, um, <laughs> you know, we can we can you know provide you with tuition remission. Of course, the other things that we can provide you with are references and work experience. If there's something that you want to get experience in that you might like to be able to include on your resume um we can help you with that <laughs> you know we, we can Absolutely. help you to um uh to uh to to be able to to get some experience um we can help you brainstorm a really awesome job title to give yourself that's fine I, I'm, we're, I'm totally flexible <laughs> like, like that um, you can update with with linkedin and you can get people to give you recommendations on linkedin so yeah yeah and of yeah. course when the time comes as i believe it will come um you know when the time comes that we are in fact able to you know afford to pay people and to build a real part-time and full-time staff obviously the people that i'm going to be first looking to hire will be you know those who have made themselves most indispensable you know in the time between now and then that's 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 kind of an obvious thing so but now we're not talking six months there when we want to set people's expectations yes yeah we're talking that that yeah that's that's likely to be years yeah a couple years down the road um before that's able to turn into a real thing so it's true i mean so basically if you're someone who is looking for you know, a paying job right away, this is not going to lead to a paying job, you know, this year, this is not going to lead to a paying job probably next year. Um, but, uh, but you know, if this is, if, if, uh, especially if, you know, if Mythgard is something that you've been excited about, if you'd like to pitch in, you know, if this is something that you would like to, you know, both to, to sort of see continue and to, to, you know, to, to really to help flourish and, uh, you know, and be a part of, you know, now and in years to come, you know, I think this is, this is a really good opportunity. So, just um, wanted to make sure that everybody knew about this uh, this opportunity, and you know, want to want to make this available to and folks. spread the word. Well, yeah. obviously, this is going to go out in the podcast, and we'll be probably uh, promoting it some more, won't we? Else in social social media and else in other places, I would imagine. That's right. So That's feel right. free to feel free to share the 
share the news. Yeah, you, you can also, of course, email me directly, but I, I do encourage you to fill out the form so that we can have, uh, you know, some, some information to, to work with there. Um, <clears throat> so that's our first announcement. The second announcement, which is like it, is that uh, we have officially opened registration for our fall courses. That That's now that's now open. So if you go um, if you go to MythGuard.org, um, you will be able to find um, the uh, the the fall classes. Um, you know, the fall 2014 courses um, are my. I'm doing my. I, we mentioned this, I think, in the last episode, but we they have, weren't open yeah. for registration. I, I mean, yet. I'll put in a, another promotion here. I mean, if if you have not done courses and are looking at, I mean, this is a very tough <coughs> if you've not done any of these courses. The Lewis and Tolkien course, I can't say enough good about. This was a great, great, great course. I did it when he was first offered, and I've heard just awesome things about Amy Sturgis's science fiction yes. courses. Um, and, of course, with the Roots of the Mountain, Doug Anderson, gosh, you know, that's another one, too. But it's but one of the things about Roots of the Mountain is it's going to be fantasy before Tolkien, so, it, you know, it, it'll... It'll be we'll be talking, I'm sure, about Tolkien to some degree, but it's really going to be focusing on the works, you know, prior to I guess like The Hobbit. So, um, just to so we know that. But I I think all three of them are just awesome choices. Yes. Yeah. No. It's this. I'm really excited about the classes. I mean, I know I'm always excited about our classes, but uh, <laughs> I mean that's why I do them because I'm excited about them. <laughs> um, but uh, this this is a really really cool lineup. So. Um, Anyway, so those are the classes that we're doing now. Those are open. Uh, those are open for enrollment. Um, you can, you know, uh, click on, you know, current courses. You can click, on, you know, in the in the admissions part. If you go to each one of the courses, um, you know, there's individual links um, to enroll in the classes. So, you know, it will take you right over to the registration page. So anyway, so that's where um, that's what's going on. At Mythgard and Signum now, we have uh, some other news, uh, some Mythmoot-related news. Right, Trish, we have... To, am I supposed to jump yeah, in there? Yeah, go okay. ahead. Then. Yeah, why don't you jump in there? <laughs> um, the proceedings from last year's Mythmoot, Mythmoot 2, are up. Um, they are the papers, some of the papers, not all. And the reason not all is because some of the folks that we're presenting uh, will be publishing their papers. Right. So in that case, they provided us their abstracts, but not the actual public, you know, publishable paper, are up on uh, on uh, MythGuard. And let's see, they are um, there's a there's actually a post about them being open. So if you go to the MythGuard site, and you can either probably. Uh, search on Mythmood, or it should be on the front page, that the proceedings are available, and they're downloadable versions of the papers. So I think you should find them. Just, they were amazing, just an amazing array of papers. Mm-hmm. Um, the Speaking of which, to follow in on that, the call for papers for Mythmood 3 is still open. Yep. The deadline for submission is August 31st. So um, if you have you know an idea you've been wanting to develop and would like to present to a body of very kind receptive folks um this is the place for that so be sure to do that and that is up also on the site um on the MythMoot page so if you go to activities and MythMoot under the MythGuard banner you can get there and of course registration for MythMoot MythMoot 3 is open um early bird prices are still in effect and will be until the end of August so we've been getting a steady flow of people in and I think there's some uh you know uh uh 
what's the word, veterans as well as new people that I've been seeing on the list. Yeah. So it'll be very interesting. Um, and did you want to say, do we want to announce, we do have our first special guest, right? Oh, yes, we do have our first special guest. Um, uh, uh, Amy Sturgis, the lecturer of the science fiction class, is going to be coming. So we're, we're going to have... Uh, um, uh, we're going to have her uh, so speaking on you know she'll be she you know she she can uh, she can talk about Tolkien too but she's going to be addressing some um, some 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 non-Tolkien subjects as well um, as we're going to be you know involving in the conversation other you know works of fantasy um, you know right. other other genres and science fiction and stuff so um, she should be fantastic because Amy is not just a faculty member of Mythgard but she actually has a standing in her own right oh correct? man she is she's yeah she's 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 one of the speakers at Worldcon this year. That is the 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 right. big science, the big global science fiction convention where they actually announce the Hugo Awards and stuff. Um, you know where like it's like how you get to vote on the Hugo Awards is if you you know if you're like a you know a, a Worldcon member. Um, so she's she's one of the speakers there this year at uh, um, at Worldcon in London. So um, yeah, no, she's she's uh, she's pretty awesome. Um, but um anyway yeah so so that's um uh that should be that that should be really fun there's, there's another uh special guest or two that we're working on we'll come back with that but um more on that later right right uh, but that is and then we have that. arrakis Right. Yes, it's that's right. The, uh, the new Mythgard Academy class begins uh, uh, next Wednesday. Um, so uh, we're doing Dune by Frank Herbert. Um, and I am uh, very excited to talk about Dune. I love that book. Um, it's been a favorite book of mine for a really long time. So um, we're going to be starting... You know, looking at uh, at, uh, at the 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 opening of Dune in Caladan, at, in Caladan uh, starting uh, next week. So the the class is shifting. It's been on Tuesday nights for most of the year. It's going to be shifting to Wednesday nights, um, so as not to conflict with Doug Anderson's Roots of the Mountain class, actually. Um, but um, but yeah, so we're going to be talking about Dune st- next Wednesday, starting at nine thirty p.m. Eastern time. Very excited about this. So make sure to spread the spread the word to, you know, your like science fiction f- fan friends, you know, who uh, might not necessarily share your love of Tolkien, but might be interested in this. It would be, it, you know, it'd be fun to uh, uh, to get, you know, to get some other people involved in this. So so do spread the word. Okay, good, very good. Yep. And uh, I, I think it's I uh, I need to uh, I need to run, but um, I, that's uh, this was a this was a this was a fun episode. I, 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 as you said, it's sort of a surprisingly upbeat episode for a uh, deathbed scene episode, but uh, but nevertheless. Well, you know, I set the tone with my very upbeat. Tap. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was really it was the perfect symbol of the entire episode. Taps, but you know, done in a quick and upbeat, jazzy fashion. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Putting the fun in in funeral, says Philip Lord. Exactly. Riddles in the dark. Putting the fun in funeral. Um, It's an excellent slogan. All right. So, anyway, well, thank you for listening and Godspeed.